isn't something that we typically like identifying ourselves with, is it? Just consider that perennial interview question. Can you share with us what you consider to be your greatest weakness? We're so uncomfortable associating ourselves with any kind of weakness that we'll typically try and rephrase our answer to that question, what are our greatest weaknesses, as if they're covert strengths. You know, we'll try and twist the the question around and get a chance to talk about what we're good at or how we've addressed our weaknesses. Sometimes I just care too much about my employer's reputation. I have a hard time submitting work that doesn't meet my own high personal standards. Sometimes I get a little bit impatient with those who aren't genuinely team players. To identify ourselves with weakness, to align ourselves even with the weaknesses of others, often goes against the very grain of how we typically like to view and think about ourselves. And yet, in this letter to the Corinthian church... Paul very deliberately sought to empathise with and to even embody spiritual weakness in his own dealings with other people. Instead of projecting an image of self-confident, self-assured, self-sufficient spiritual strength, instead of being self-assertive with respect to his own rights and freedoms and strengths, Paul intentionally sought to embrace and embody a spiritual posture of weakness. And over the course of this morning, I'm going to try and encourage you as to why it would be good for us as a church to likewise embrace a posture of spiritual weakness. We'll reflect on what that might look like as we work our way through today's passage. But we saw this actual, this uh, posture of spiritual weakness, this willingness to embrace the spiritual weakness of others, when Paul actually opened up his letter. I wonder if you remember these words from chapter 2. We looked at uh, 1 Corinthians, we started looking at this uh, book of 1 Corinthians back uh, last year. Uh, Have a look at these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There Paul had written, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If if you remember those verses, Paul deliberately embraced a manner of speech which must have seemed pretty weak, ineffectual, impotent, at least from a human perspective. Paul intentionally embraced rhetorical weakness in his preaching and his teaching amongst the Corinthians, in order to protect the infant Corinthian church from their tendency to idolise everything that was spiritually strong and showy and impressive. And again, last week, we saw that Paul deliberately embraced behaviour which must have seemed pretty inhibited and weak from a human perspective. Uh, Glance down with me in your Bibles to chapter 8, It's just the the paragraph just before the one that Fiona read out to us a moment ago. Chapter 8, verse 9. I'll read out these words. This was a warning that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Chapter 8, verse 9. Paul wrote, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes a brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. We have here a situation in which those who considered themselves spiritually enlightened, those who wrongly imagined that they were free to keep eating in pagan temples, were emboldening weaker Christians to re-engage with their idolatrous practices, their former idolatrous practices, to risk falling away from their Christian faith by re-engaging in their past life. Those whose consciences were too weak or ineffectual to identify the spiritual danger that they were in, in their situation, were literally being emboldened or strengthened to re-engage with their former pagan ways. And Paul concludes... If my eating meat strengthens the weak to start practicing idolatry again, then I will never exercise my freedom to eat meat ever again. Paul will abandon every spiritual freedom, every spiritual right, every spiritual liberty that he personally possesses if it runs the risk of strengthening the obedience if it strengthens the obedience, sorry, of those whose own consciences are too weak, compromised or ineffectual to clearly recognise the vulnerability that they're in by returning to those temples. But Paul's accommodation to the weak, to those who were most at risk of returning to idolatry, didn't go down so well to the very spiritually self-assured in the Corinthian church. I can imagine the Corinthians listening to Paul's letter here about the fact that he won't eat meat ever again if it strengthens the weak. I can imagine them saying, why should the spiritual weakness, why should the moral failings of those who are least mature become a ball and chain that enslaves and compromises the freedoms and the liberties of the spiritually strong, of the spiritually enlightened and self-disciplined? In fact, Paul, if you're going to let the failings of the spiritually weak amongst us, the more compromised believers, if you're going to let their problems weigh down those who are spiritually strong, then maybe we're not, you're not the kind of leader that we're looking for, Paul. Maybe we need someone who's going to champion our spiritual freedoms and liberties. That's pretty clear from today's passage in chapter 9 that Paul is facing some intense criticism here, some suspicion that he's perhaps gone soft on defending the religious freedoms and liberties of those who are spiritually strong. Uh, have a look with me at our opening verses from chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Anticipating criticism, Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? 
Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense, Paul writes, to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? This is my defence, declares Paul. This is my defence for why I stand with the spiritually weak rather than the strong. That's what Paul's about to outline in chapter 9 here. Now, perhaps you notice, though, that Paul kicks off his defence, perhaps a bit surprisingly, by asserting his status, his standing and his rights that he has a claim to as an apostle, by asserting what the Corinthian church owes to him as their apostle. By virtue of being an apostle, that is one who's been sent by God, by virtue of his status as someone who's seen the resurrected Jesus, by virtue of his being one who is humanly responsible for the creation of the Corinthian church, as someone who worked ceaselessly amongst them for a couple of years, didn't Paul have the right to be financially provided for by the Corinthians? And if Paul and Barnabas, if they had brought wives with them, as was the case for the other apostles, wouldn't they both have had the right to expect hospitality from the Corinthians as well? As a little side comment here for those of us uh, who were here with us last year as we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, it's clear from Paul's comments about the other apostles here that being married need not at all compromise one's involvement in Christian ministry, in gospel ministry. Being married isn't a handicap at all in that point as some have some, uh, I have often suggested, suggested. But Paul goes on in the rest of the middle section of chapter 9 to cite a whole string, a whole list of justifications for why he had the right to expect the Corinthians to support him during that time that he worked amongst them. I wonder if you noticed all the little examples that Paul lists out there as Fiona had read uh, this passage to us a moment ago. Paul gives the example of a soldier, for instance. Soldiers don't pay their own way for the privilege of fighting in a battle or in a war or a campaign. He also gave the example of a vineyard owner. Vineyard owners don't pay for the privileges of enjoying in their own wine. Or the example of a shepherd who doesn't need to purchase milk from his own flock of goats. Then there's the farmer. Surely the farmer should rightly hope to share in the benefits of her harvest that she brings in. And then finally, Paul also uses the example of Israel's temple, the, the temple of the Jewish people. God had commanded that the priests serving in the temple should share in the sacrifices that were offered up on the altar. What's amazing is that despite this long list of precedents justifying why he had a right to enjoy his benefits, his rights, his privileges from the Corinthians, do you notice how Paul reflects on his rights? Down there in verse 11. Have a look with me to verse 11. After just listing off all these reasons why he has a right to support from the Corinthians, he writes in verse 11, "'If we have sown spiritual seed amongst you as a church,' 
Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And look again, down to verse 15, a few verses down further. Paul writes, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. That is the boast that he used none of his rights or privileges. What's going on here with Paul? Why was it that Paul was so charagotically resistant to either use or to benefit from his rights and status as an apostle? Now, it's clear from verse 12, if you have a glance there in your passage, it's clear from verse 12 that the Corinthians were perfectly happy to financially support their other spiritual teachers and leaders. In fact, it seems like the Corinthians were probably very generous to others who had taught them, who'd come and ministered to them. The Corinthians were not opposed to showing generosity to those who led them. In fact, the Corinthians so loved to honour and even idolise their leaders that they would habitually boast about them, quarrel over them, they would glory in their leaders and celebrate those who were their favourite leaders amongst them. Have a look at these verses from earlier on in the letter. Uh, They might remind you of how the Corinthians generally thought about their leaders in chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes, For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, the Corinthian church, are you not worldly? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Friends, the Corinthians' greatest spiritual weakness was their tendency to idolise and honour their church leaders as being more than merely human. Had Paul made use of his spiritual rights and freedoms as an apostle, he would have been enabling the Corinthians in their sin of leader worship, of leader idolization. And so out of love for them in their spiritual immaturity, their spiritual weakness, in their area of greatest spiritual compromise, to protect them from their own weaknesses and spiritual immaturity, Paul abandoned every rightful claim that he had upon their honour, their financial support and their recognition of his status. Paul refused to make use of any of his rights lest he cause the Corinthians to stumble into the sin of worshipping him, honouring him rather than Christ. Paul willingly chained and restrained his own rights and freedoms to make allowance for their spiritual weakness and sin. And I think that's what Paul is saying towards the end of our passage. Have a look to uh, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. Paul writes there, To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I became all things to all people, that by all possible means I might save some. 
I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul made himself, we read this in other parts of his writings to the Corinthians, Paul made himself physically weak, socially weak, rhetorically weak. Paul hobbled his rights and freedoms that he might not embolden the Corinthians to indulge in their spiritual weakness of idolising human leaders in the place of worshipping Jesus. And Paul's plea in this part of his letter to the Corinthians is that the Corinthians would do exactly the same thing when it comes to how they think about what they will and won't eat, what they do and don't have a right to eat. Paul is urging them, remember this from last week, to exercise your freedom in a way that strengthens the spiritually weak amongst you. To choose to make use of your rights in a way that strengthens the spiritually immature and the spiritually compromised amongst the church family. Uh, Up on the screen here is a mosaic of a Roman woman. Uh, This is from exactly around about the time that Paul would have been writing his letter to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, We don't really know who this woman is at all. She's an anonymous woman, but probably not too dissimilar to the kinds of people who would have been a part of the Corinthian church. And I want you just to imagine for a moment, uh, imagine that we'll we'll call this woman uh, uh, Liviana. We'll call her Liviana. And imagine that this woman has got a husband, Rufus. Uh, Liviana, is. uh, imagine her as being a new convert to the Christian faith in Corinth. But her husband, Rufus, isn't a believer. Liviana, as a new convert, has decided that she won't keep going to the temple to participate in the parties and the festivals that take place in the temples scattered throughout Corinth as a way to honour Jesus, the one who she has turned to worship. But Rufus, who isn't a Christian yet, has decided to keep on going to the temple, to to joining in in those celebrations without her. And in fact, he's a little bit miffed at the fact that she's decided to pull back from joining in these celebrations. They're such a significant part of social and family life. Liviana stays at home to avoid engaging in idolatry while Rufus continues to go. Imagine, though, that one day Rufus, the unbelieving husband, comes home from the temple, his latest temple celebration, with a triumphant look on his face. And he announces... I just saw Stephanus. Isn't he at your church? Isn't he another fellow believer? I just saw Stephanus come up to the very temple that we were celebrating in and get takeaway. He took away a whole hind quarter of meat from the temple. If it's okay for Stephanus to come and get takeaway from the temple, get the meat and take it home, then why can't you join us in our celebrations down at the temple? And so Liviana starts to wonder, uh, well, well, maybe if Stephanus is getting takeaway, maybe, maybe it is okay. Maybe I'm being unreasonable in refusing to go along with Rufus and the rest of the family and continue in these celebrations. Maybe I'm actually creating trouble at home. Maybe next time I, I will go down. If Stephanus is getting takeaway, maybe I'll go down and re-engage with, with the rest of my family at the local temple. Friends, wouldn't it be shameful if our exercise of freedom enabled a spiritually weak brother or sister to once again begin flirting 
with the sin that they left behind in coming to follow Jesus. Yeah? Wouldn't that be shameful? In thinking about the ways in which it might weigh upon us, I guess we could ask these kind of questions. What kinds of shows am I free as a Christian to watch or to recommend to others on my favourite streaming service? What am I free to drink? And when? And how much? What social venues am I free to frequent? And with whom? How and in what circumstances am I free to holiday with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? What degree of physical intimacy am I free to enjoy with my fiancé? What level of ambition am I free to pursue in my career or even in my ministry? Now, I'd love to draw a whole lot of lines and boundaries for you today about what I think a believer is and is not free to do as a matter of those questions. I have a whole bunch of convictions on each of those areas. More than happy to share with you my convictions following the service today if you want to sit there and listen to me go on about them. But I'm not going to draw those lines for us this morning. In fact, it's interesting that Paul doesn't go on to draw many lines that we might have expected either. Instead, I'm going to take those questions about our freedoms in those areas and do something with them that perhaps is a little bit even more confronting than telling you where the lines should be. Friends, whatever your own convictions may be about the godly exercise of your freedoms as a believer, I plead with you to ask these two questions. Firstly, first question, where might the godly exercise of my freedoms embolden the weaker sister or brother to flirt with or stumble into sin? I'll repeat that again. Where might the godly exercise of my freedoms embolden a weaker brother or sister in Christ to flirt with or stumble into sin? That's a better question to ask than what are the lines of my freedoms? Or perhaps another question that I'd encourage you to ask is this. How might my refraining, how might refraining from the use of my freedoms strengthen the weaker brother or sister to pursue godliness? How might willingly, freely refraining from the use of my freedoms strengthen the weaker brother or sister to pursue godliness? Friends, if there's one thing that you take away from this morning, I would ask it be this. Rather than asking where you can draw the line about how to exercise your own freedoms, ask how you can either use or give up using your rights and freedoms in a way that strengthens the spiritually weaker amongst us. Now, I know that's a little bit of a challenging way to begin approaching thinking about our freedoms. You might even be thinking, but Steve, that's a lose-lose. Either way, I don't get to use my freedoms the way that I want to. It is a bit frustrating to begin to shift how we think about the use of our freedoms, isn't it, that way? And actually, as we were wrestling through this passage as a staff, as Lauren and I particularly were thinking through this passage this last week, 
we're grappling with why it is that it's so difficult to think about our freedoms in this kind of way. And I thought Lauren's and her growth group came up with some wonderful reflections that I thought maybe Lauren could share with us uh, before we continue on and wrap up our time together this morning. Uh, yeah, so in our growth group on Wednesday night, we were kind of trying to wrestle through the idea of uh, why is it that so often when we are asked to lay down a freedom or a right of some kind that we really double down and don't want to. And something that uh, one of our group members voiced that I think felt really sticky and relatable to a lot of us was that uh, as a Christian, you can feel like you're already sort of saying no to so much stuff. As a Christian, you can feel like there's things that I'm not allowed to do or that I've sacrificed even. We can really think about it in that way of sacrifice. And so now you're telling me that I might think about sacrificing or saying no to extra stuff? Like, really? Uh, And so that was an idea that came up for us as we were wondering through what's our mindset um, around this idea of laying aside freedoms for the sake of others. Um, And something that I found helpful as we kept then discussing the passage that we'll kind of come to as Steve talks about these last few verses as well, um, is seeing that Paul doesn't seem to see any of this as sacrifice, actually. He doesn't really use that word when he's talking about laying aside freedoms, but he's uh, seeing it as part of sharing in the blessings of, um, you know, striving towards that eternal life with Christ. And so uh, that was just a thing that I took away from our discussion that I found quite thought-provoking. What what does it look like to really train my gaze so much on the goodness of what God's taking uh, me and my brothers and sisters towards that uh, saying no to something for the sake of someone else's strengthening in that journey um, that's just, it's, a, it's almost like a no-brainer to me that that's a good thing to do and something that I would pursue. Um, I'll hand back over to Steve now to finish up. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. That, that just named so well for me, I think, what was going on often in my own heart as I hear this call to lay aside my freedoms, either to help someone avoid their own weaknesses or to lay aside my own freedoms in order to strengthen someone in godliness, I think that named exactly uh, the instinctive response that I felt pushing back inside. And as Lauren mentioned, I think what I found most moving about today's passage, chapter 9, is that Paul doesn't seem to think of his foregoing his rights and his freedoms as a loss at all. I found that really stunning. Have a look with me at our final verses that we'll ponder this morning. Uh, Verses 23 uh, to the end of the chapter. And we'll briefly reflect on this. Paul writes, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What's Paul saying here? Well, there's, re- there's probably more than we can hope to really cover from those verses this morning, but I do just want to reflect on a couple of things as we wind up. Pursuing 
our own freedoms, rights and liberties may indeed result in a temporary win for ourselves in the here and now. And that's how we often think about our rights and freedoms, isn't it? We're competing with others' rights and freedoms. We're seeking to gain our own rights and freedoms that we might enjoy the benefit of winning them. Pursuing our own freedoms, rights and liberties may indeed result in a win, but only for this life. Any benefit we get from pursuing our own rights, freedoms and liberties will deliver at best, at best a blessing that is sure to fade in an instant. In contrast, the pursuit of opportunities to love others above ourselves, to lay aside our rights and our freedoms in order to love those who are weaker than we are, that will reflect a glory, that will achieve a crown of glory that will keep its luster for eternity. Friends, whatever joy or glory or delight we might conceivably win for ourselves by insisting upon our own freedoms or rights in this life, they'll all pale into insignificance when compared to the eternal glory that comes from laying aside what we have a right to out of love for the weaker brother or sister. For isn't that exactly this laying aside, forgoing rights, laying them aside for the benefit of the weaker brother or sister, isn't that exactly the kind of glory in which the Lord Jesus himself is robed? If we want to share in Christ's glory, laying aside all of our rights, freedoms and liberties for the sake of the weaker is exactly what we will be eager to pursue. Let's pray that God might graciously do that work in us that is so lacking in instinct for us. Our dearest Father, we are so attuned to the way of thinking that, that says the way of blessing, the way of satisfaction is to pursue our own rights, liberties, freedoms, to make the most of them, often without giving a thought to the impact that that might have upon others around about us. And yet, Father, that is not the glory that the Lord Jesus clothed himself in. It's not the glory that Paul himself pursued, disciplined himself in pursuit of. Father, we ask that we might join with Paul and indeed the Lord Jesus in that discipline of siding, of embracing spiritual weakness, the spiritual weakness of others, that we might place ourselves in their shoes for their good and lay aside all that you have given us to enjoy wherever it might be for the benefit. So that his precious church might be strengthened and built up more and more as each day passes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, we're going to sing again uh, with our masks and stand.